This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction airs on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, novelists, poets, and scholars about the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. Lately, the Wuhan COVID lab leak theory has had me thinking about the state of journalism. I've asked leading media critic, Professor Dan Kennedy, to weigh in on this. We'll be back in a moment. The news headlines about the origin of the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, China, are shifting. The New York Times, Washington Post, and other publications have printed retractions and recalibrations about the reporting from early 2020, as the Biden administration calls for a fresh inquiry into the virus origin, a question many of us have been thinking about. Did the mainstream media make mistakes when reporting on a virology lab in Wuhan, China. At a time when media mistrust is high, very high as some would suggest, what are the practical implications for media consumers and media accountability? Well, we won't solve the virus origin debate today, but with the help of a widely respected media critic, it might be possible to gain some insight into the state of journalism. My guest today is Professor Dan Kennedy. He is a professor at Northeastern University's School of Journalism, specializing in opinion journalism and alternative business models for news, and has contributed articles and to a number of publications, including the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and Neiman Lab. Professor Kennedy has received journalism awards and is the author of several books, including... The Return of the Moguls, How Jeff Bezos and John Henry Are Remaking Newspapers for the 21st Century, and The Wired City, Reimagining Journalism and Civic Life in the Post-Newspaper Age. Reporting on media since 1991, Kennedy maintains the blog Media Nation, a nationally recognized source of news and commentary. Professor Dan Kennedy, welcome to Real Fiction. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Professor Kennedy, this month you authored a widely read opinion piece titled Why It Matters, Tracking the Media's Dismissal of the Wuhan Lab Theory. And in that article you wrote, with a few lonely exceptions, the mainstream press over the course of the past 15 months has dismissed any suggestion that COVID-19 came from a lab as so ludicrous it was unworthy of coverage. The media's coverage is taking yet another hit, this one entirely legitimate. Okay, so the reporting on the so-called Wuhan lab leak theory has itself become a story. In your view, what did mainstream media get wrong and what does this say about the current state of journalism? This has been a fraught topic for quite a while. 
And I, I think that what happened was, and by the way, since that column came out, I've heard from a number of people who are insisting that the virus almost certainly came from animal to human transmission and that the lab had nothing to do with it. Well, that's very possible. Uh, I'm looking at this from a media and political point of view. And I think that what happened in that regard is that it came to be seen as disreputable to continue looking into the possibility that the lab had been a source of uh, the virus. And it became caught up in the media's coverage of President Trump's statements on COVID, which, you know, he lied, he made things up, uh, he covered up. And I think that unfortunately, because he was also making racist comments about uh, the origins of, uh, you know, the Chinese flu and all that, then taking seriously even the possibility that the lab had had something to do with the origins of COVID uh, was seen as a sign of, oh, you're just believing the Trumpers, and we all know that anything that they say is false. And I think that that was a mistake. To this day, we don't know exactly where the virus came from. We may never know, uh, but there is at least a possibility that it was some sort of accident that took place at the lab, and we ought to be open to investigating that. And I think finally, after all this time, we are open to investigating it. I mentioned in the introduction that you teach journalism at Northeastern University. And I imagine as students return to the classroom, this lab leak theory might become a teachable example of the responsibility of how to evaluate sources when reporting. Um, how might a story like this or any story inform you as a professor when you're teaching students and challenging them to think about how to evaluate sources before they put them into a story? We're very good at media, at mea culpas in journalism. Uh, we seem to make the same mistakes over and over again. <laughs> and, then we, and then we acknowledge it and say, well, we won't do it again. But as I look back at this, um, I'm wondering how might it have been different? And what I come back to is that there were a few very good journalists who continue to say, you know, this lab leak is, in fact, a real possibility. Um, one of them was uh, Josh Rogan, who's an opinion mm -hmm. journalist for The Washington Post. That is somebody who we should have been paying more attention to. So I think that in looking at this as kind of a case study, I think that we need to ask ourselves, why were we all moving in only one direction and not considering some good, respectable voices who were, in fact, saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, there might be another explanation for this? You mentioned Josh in your piece, and there's another reporter, Matthew Iglesias, who's uh, who wrote a piece that was also widely circulated on the lab leak theory. And 
he wrote this from a popular blog on the platform Substack. It's called Slow Boring. And the reason I want to ask you about that is Substack is one of those platforms that um, are part of the kind of evolution of this media ecosystem. And there are journalists who have worked for sort of traditional publications like Washington Post, New York Times. And I think in Matthew's case, it was uh, he was a co-founder of Vox, Vox with a V, uh, but he left to work independently. So for listeners who may not have heard of Substack or don't follow a particular writer on the site, what is Substack? And in your view, how does it fit into the overall media ecosystem? Well, Substack is really just a newsletter and blogging platform. And, uh, you know, I've been blogging since 2001. So I, I don't really feel it's as revolutionary as some people do. It's evolutionary. Mm-hmm. It's evolutionary in an important way. And that is, it has developed some software tools that have made it easier to charge your audience so that people can pay 5 or $6 a month and, uh, and, and get to read you. Or maybe you charge 5 or $6 a month for some extra features. So there are a number of journalists who have moved to Substack because they want to have more direct control over their work. And some of them are doing very well with it. Unfortunately, there are, as we see with so many of these things, there are a few big winners at the top, and Matty Glacius is one of them. And most people are toiling in the vineyards for very little money. So uh, it's it's great if you go to Substack and already have this pre-existing uh, reputation where you can go out and attract an audience. But it's it's a tough way to make a living for most people. Do you have a sense of uh, who is subscribing to Substack blogs and journalists? And I ask that because, you know, I think the younger generation is just accustomed to getting free content um, for their their news. There's, so there's this tension between consumers, how we get our news and are we willing to pay for it? And how do we sift through everything that's available to us on the internet? Are, what are you seeing in terms of who's using Substack and where else are people going and, and where are they willing to pay to get the kind of content they want? Well, I think that in recent years, we've actually seen a renaissance of uh, paid content and um, news organizations like uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and even some of the regional publications like the Boston Globe and the Minneapolis Star Tribune have enjoyed quite a bit of success in moving away from the mostly advertising model and embracing uh, reader revenue. And, uh, and it's really led to kind of a, um, a real comeback for a number of legacy news organizations. The wrinkle that you get with Substack is that you're paying, in most cases, for an individual writer. And uh, it might be voluntary. And um, a lot of us are experimenting with this. I'm I'm experimenting with this myself on my uh, Media Nation blog, although I, I don't use Substack. I think it really remains to be seen how many individual 
writers anyone is going to be willing to pay for. My suspicion is that it's very, very low. Uh, I, I think that if we can get most people to take out a digital subscription to one, maybe two newspapers, we would be doing very well indeed. And to think that a lot of people are going to lay out money for uh, a number of individual writers, I think is probably not something that's going to happen except in a few unusual cases. There's a lot to think about there. And um, at the same time, there are so many headlines about the state of the news industry and a lot of newsroom layoffs, small papers continue to close. You know, was you you advise your students who are just starting out in the field and they're thinking about where do I fit in? Where is my place in the media? What are these conversations like in the classroom? You know, that's that's a great question because of course uh, they're concerned and they have a right to be concerned. What I do tell them is that working in journalism has never been especially easy, but there's no question that it's harder now. Uh, no question at all about that. Uh, you know, we have students who are working at great news organizations around the country. I don't mean students, I mean recent graduates uh, from the New York Times to BuzzFeed to uh, Politico to local television and uh, newspaper jobs. But it's, it, it is difficult, isn't it? Um, one of the aspects of what's going on these days that really troubles me is that we already know that the news business and what we used to refer to as the newspaper business is struggling because Craigslist, Google, and Facebook have scooped up uh, most of the advertising revenue. That would be a difficult enough problem to deal with, but it's compounded by the rise of corporate chains and hedge fund ownership that is just squeezing the life out of newspapers that would nevertheless probably have a way of figuring things out and moving forward and innovating if they didn't have to ship all their revenues out of town to enrich their owners or help them pay down the debt that they took on to assemble their chain. Mm -hmm. My major research interest these days, and it's the subject of yet another book that I'm working on, is alternatives to this type of corporate chain ownership. Mm. And, you know, in fact, we see some very interesting alternatives around the country uh, from medium-sized newspapers all the way down to hyperlocal websites that are finding ways of really providing their communities with the journalism they need to function in a democracy. And they're doing it while having at least some success. I've heard about this model called the local to global story trajectory and maybe the Flint, Michigan lead in the water story is a, a good good example. Something that started out as a local story where there was a small local newspaper and then it kind of fed up through the pipeline and became a global story. Do you see opportunities for journalists to really get back to the basics and report locally and have the sort of gratification of seeing that story amplified. 
Well, that opportunity is certainly there if a local story becomes uh, so big that the national media start to pay attention. Um, but I would push back on a little bit on the idea that that's what we ought to be concerned about. I would love to see the return of a journalism in which serving the community is satisfaction in its own right. And we don't necessarily worry about moving everything up the media food chain. You know, I was thinking about this recently. What if every public school teacher in the country was involved in some sort of a, uh, you know, tooth and nail competition to get a job at one of the top five public school districts in the country? Hmm. That would be a, that would be insane, wouldn't it? Hmm. And yet that's kind of where we're at in journalism. Everybody is trying to climb that career ladder and get a job at, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, instead of serving their community. Now, one of the reasons that we have that competition, of course, is because the local news environment has become so hollowed out and it's very difficult to make a living in local news. But as recently as a couple of generations ago, there were tens of thousands of journalists in this country who made their career as local journalists, and they were part of their community, and they were able to make a decent living, raise a family, and this is what they did. And I would love to see us be able to get back to that. And what sort of funding model or business model seems to you to be a good starting point? Well, there were really a number of different funding models out there. And I, I've really been reporting on this for a dozen years now. And I've been convinced for a long time that there is no one size fits all solution to the problem of local news. Uh, but we see a fair number of nonprofits out there making their money from grants and donations and, and doing fairly mm -hmm. doing fairly well. There are some for-profits. For-profit is actually a harder way to go than non-profit because uh, it's so difficult to get advertising money in the age of Facebook. But the for-profits are being able to add membership programs, paid events, uh, paid subscriptions that really weren't available to them a few years ago. And so for-profit is starting to look like a better option. There's the Public Benefit Corporation, which has been adopted by papers as large as the Philadelphia Inquirer and as small as the uh, Colorado Sun, which is a startup website, where it's a for-profit, but it's governed in such a way that they are not they don't have a fiduciary responsibility to enrich their owners. They're able to take the profits and reinvest it in what they're doing. There's the co-op model. There's a project out in California called the Mendocino Voice that I'm paying very close attention to, where they started five years ago as a for-profit, and now they're reorganizing as a co-op where staff members and readers can become members of the co-op 
and have a say hmm. in how the men and how the Mendocino voice is run. So there are are many many different models to this, and sometimes it's just a matter of having an owner who has the means to invest and move forward toward the future and some patience. And again, that's what we've seen with papers like the Boston Globe and the Minneapolis Star Tribune, both of which are profitable enterprises these days with decent-sized newsrooms. Well, Mendocino Voice, for anyone listening and interested in this topic, that's um, maybe a paper to watch. Since this program will air in the Washington metro region, I'd like to ask you a question about the Washington Post um, as it relates to the business models that you just described. Most people know Jeff Bezos is the owner of the Washington Post, and there is a new editor at the paper. And I'm sure you've been tracking this to some extent, um, Professor Kennedy. What is your view about the editorial shift that the Washington Post may experience? The new editor, Sally Busby, comes to the Washington Post from the Associated Press. Her specialty at the AP was international news. And I think that that may give us a hint of where the Post is going. Okay. Because... When Jeff Bezos came in, uh, the first thing he did was he moved away from the post-traditional niche as a large regional paper with some national interest, of course, because it was in Washington, and turned it into a national, mostly digital publication. And the Post experienced a huge amount of success doing that. The Post and the New York Times probably benefited from the Trump bump more than any two news organizations in the country. Uh, and, you know, the Post had a great editor in Marty Barron as well. Uh, now, given Sally Busby's interest in international, I think that's going to be the next step that the Post takes. Uh, even, even in the late stages of the Marty Barron regime, uh, the Post was starting to pump up some of what it did internationally. I think that they probably see that there is a market for that. It's an area in which the New York Times is probably well ahead of them. And uh, that they see that this may be a place to catch up. So that's where I think Sally Busby is going to be concentrating most of her attention. By the way, I think, I, I think that the question is, is the Post going to be more interested in truly covering the world or in making sense of the world for an American readership? That really is the question. And I remind listeners that my guest today is Professor Dan Kennedy. He's a professor at Northeastern University School of Journalism. And we started this conversation about um, the reportage on the Wuhan lab leak theory, using it as an example to kind of get a fresh sense of the state of journalism from one of the US's leading media critics. And this is just sort of a general question. And I hear this sometimes. Somebody will say, journalism is dead. There's no journalism, just opinions. Now, one of your areas of expertise is opinion journalism. So let's say you're at a dinner party and someone just says journalism is, is dead. What is an answer? I'd say have another drink. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that you, you do hear that. You're right. Uh, I think that the uh, observation is absurd on its face when you look at the enormous audience for journalism that is out there. Now, there's no question that we are awash in opinion these days because opinion is cheap. Now, I'm not denigrating opinion journalism by any means. I, I practice it. And as you mentioned, I also teach it. Um, but I think that when opinion journalism is done well, uh, it has to be every bit as rigorous and factual as um, straight news reporting. Great opinion journalism includes reporting and research and, and, and everything that we would have in uh, a great straight news story. But I do think that there is tremendous value in maintaining the tradition of a hard-hitting, truth-seeking, but neutral press. And, uh, and, and I hope that the fact that the internet in particular has led to the proliferation of opinion doesn't obscure the value of that more traditional type of media. Well, we all know that there are good journalists doing amazing reporting and investigations. Um, sometimes we have to dig a bit, but I'll bet there are listeners that are curious, like me, how does a journalism professor like you begin the news day? What can you share about your process for getting the full picture? Where are you going in the morning when you get up? What websites and what newspapers? Oh, my. I... My um, my media diet is so boring and predictable <laughs> that uh, mm. I, I I almost hate to admit it. Um, you know, my two daily reads are the Boston Globe and the New York Times. I start my day with those every day. Uh, I will often read stuff in the Washington Post as it comes up, things that capture my interest. Uh, I read a number of media newsletters, the CNN Reliable Sources newsletter, uh, the Columbia Journalism Review morning media newsletter, uh, the Pointer Institute's morning newsletter. And at that point, if I haven't, you know, stopped reading and started working, I'm in trouble for the day. Well, that actually seems like a pretty broad series of publications to take a look at. Well, a final question, I guess, is what gives you hope about the news industry? Well, you know, I must say our students give me hope because they are smart, idealistic, hardworking, and uh, I think that they are going to create a journalism that's better than what I worked in for much of my career. Uh, so that's really where I take my hope from. Well, my guest again is Professor Dan Kennedy. He's a professor at Northeastern University School of Journalism. He has a wonderful website, Media Nation. I now check that out regularly. And I can't thank you enough for joining us on Real Fiction and sharing your insights with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate having the chance to talk with you about these issues.
You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction airs Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.